you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. In this country, one of our most cherished freedoms is the freedom of speech. Unlike other countries where what you say can have you arrested or even killed, we do not fear reprisal from our government when we express our opinions, even opinions uh, contrary to what our government leaders hold. Of course, this freedom of speech has been expanded to cover just about anything these days. But in some ways, that only proves the point. You can say just about anything today, and it's okay. Yet as God's people, that freedom of speech this government grants to us does not apply to us in the same way that it does everyone else. As God's people, he has given us instructions on what to say. And what we understand is that we cannot say whatever we want. We do not have a total freedom of speech. Instead, God has told us what kind of speech we should have, what kind of words should be on our lips, and the intention of the heart from which those words come. In other words, God has told us how to speak. This topic is timely because we have just spent two weeks looking at God's Word, God's Word in our life, God's Word in our prayers back to Him, and how that should affect our words. And what we see throughout the Bible is instruction after instruction sprinkled across its pages about how we are to use our words. And yet, here in Ephesians 4, what we see is a basic framework for our speech. It is a basic framework by which we can understand all of the Bible's content about the kind of words that we use. And we see this basic framework is ultimately rooted in our new life in Christ. So this morning, we want to come seeking what kind of speech we should have. As God's people, how should we be using our words? What kinds of things should we be saying? What kinds of things should we not be saying? And to do this, we want to look at Ephesians chapter 4. And though we will not cover every verse, it's important to get the context of Paul's instruction here. So let's begin reading at verse 17. I encourage you to follow along as I read. The apostle says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of God this morning. May he... May we be blessed by its reading. From these verses, God establishes some essential guidelines for how we should talk and why we should talk. So what do we see here? We see three things. First, we see that we should speak without sinful corruption. We should speak without sinful corruption. Paul says very clearly in verse 29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. Now the word corrupting here is as important as it is descriptive. It's only used a handful of other times in the New Testament. One, for example, is in Luke 6 where Jesus uses this word to refer to bad or rotting fruit hanging from a dead tree. Another place is Matthew 13 where Jesus is speaking again of food, this time of putrid fish, rotting fish. Now thinking about these two examples at least initially brings at least to my mind odors that would never be marketed as scented candles you would find in stores, nor something you would want to be served on your plate to eat. Kids, if you ever come home from school and find your snack to be rotten fruit and fish, you will know your mom was serious when she said, clean your room. The imagery is frankly repulsive. It speaks of death and decay. It's imagery of things that we would inherently see and throw out as garbage. In fact, in Matthew 13, that is exactly what the men do. As they gather the fish and we are told they remove the bad, the ones that are already dead and rotting, and cast them back into the sea apart from the good fish that they will eat and sell. Those things are good for nothing but garbage. And Paul takes that same imagery and applies it to speech. He says there is a kind of speech that is of the moral category equivalent to rotting fruit and fish. And what does he say that we should do with that kind of language? Throw it out. As God's people, we aren't to use corrupting language. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. He says, why? Fundamentally, because it is a corruption that dishonors. It is a corruption that dishonors. In verse 22, Paul tells the Ephesians, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. When our speech falls into the category of corrupting talk, Paul says it, it dishonors Christ. For he himself is the new self. He is the new man that we are seeking as God's people to be putting on. He is the pattern of God's new humanity that we, he is seeking to change us into and renew us into. Therefore, when our speech is fundamentally out of step with the pattern of godliness we see in Christ, it dishonors Christ. It shows we aren't seeking to put to death our old patterns of life as we are instructed to in favor of the new, more glorious pattern in him. Frankly, it says we find our sin more desirable than Christ himself. What could be more dishonoring to him than that? Now, maybe you're wondering, well, what are we actually talking about here? Practically, what, what kind of talk does Paul have in mind? Well, we see there is corruption that 
dishonors, but he also describes here the kind of speech that he is talking about. And so here we see, first of all, corruption that degrades. We saw corruption that dishonors Christ and now corruption that degrades. Specifically, he has in mind here what we would call profanity or vulgar speech. In fact, Paul talks about this just a few verses later in chapter 5, verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Now, to some degree, this is just common sense, right? I mean, uh, maybe, maybe it's just me, but when you have someone talking about the things of God one minute and using profanity or telling dirty jokes the next, it doesn't seem to go together. So, for example, it's always like nails on the chalkboard whenever there is some interview with Bono and he's talking about loving Jesus and being a Christian and then dropping F-bombs in the next sentence. Uh, One of these things is not like the other, right? I mean, there's a certain common sense to that. But it doesn't need to be that dramatic either. Just like the Roman culture of Paul's day saw profane and crude talk to be part of everyday life, sometimes even a part of pagan worship, so it is with us today. As one who frequently goes out in public places, particularly that has free Wi-Fi, to grab a Coke and do some work, it is always uh, surprising and also, frankly, irritating when two people will sit down next to you and have a conversation that is classified very much as corrupting talk. It not only includes foul language, but the content itself, the kinds of things they're talking about, are not in any way helpful, but are in fact degrading. The sad fact is, sometimes this is even true of us as God's people. Think about this. When something doesn't go right, when something makes you angry and you get mad, what is the first thing that you reference with your words? What is the first thing that comes out of your mouth or that you talk about? In this culture, I have to say, for the most part, the first thing that we talk about when we get upset or mad or something doesn't go right is poop, right? Isn't that what comes out of our mouth? All the words and euphemisms that we have for poop, think about that. Some of them mildly profane, some of them incredibly profane as as we think about our culture. But why in the world, even as God's people, do we always go around talking about poop? I don't get it. I, I just cannot see Jesus being with his disciples and seeing the Pharisees coming over the hill and him saying, Oh, poop, here they come again. If Jesus is not talking in a way that is characterized with that kind of words, then why do we say it? Why do we degrade ourselves and our witness and our testimony and those around us by, by bringing up such scatological things? Let me be clear here, too. My, my intention in this sermon is not to come up with a list of naughty words that we should not be said. This is not a George Carlin act. That's not what I'm talking about here. No, on one level, the specific words that we use are important. I have that in mind. More fundamental here is this question. How is our thinking and therefore our language being shaped by society's words rather than God's words? Does our speech degrade us and those around us because it reeks of sin's corruption? Or does it give off the sweet aroma of God's grace? We should throw off speech that is marked by corruption that degrades, but also that which is corrupt because it, is, because it demeans. We should throw off speech marked by corruption that demeans. If we want to talk about a naughty list of words, before we ever get to profanity, we should have words like idiot, 
fool, and stupid on that list. Why? Because they demean the people we're talking about in ways that cause us to hold them in contempt. It it leads us to see them as being inherently inferior than us, not worth our time or our patience or our resources. It's the very thing that Jesus himself warns about in Matthew chapter 5. He says, anyone who calls a man fool is in danger of hellfire. Now, he doesn't mean to not actually necessarily use the word fool, right? The word fool is actually a category in the Bible. Read Proverbs. There's a whole type of person labeled the fool. The point is not the actual word, looking at someone and saying, boy, they're a fool. They might be, biblically speaking. The, the point is, how are you using that word? Is it, are you using it with the intention of demeaning that person? Of, of making them less than you, and therefore not worth your time or your concern? Again, the point is not necessarily the specific words we use, though that is something important. The point is the intention and the mindset behind it. Does our attitude and therefore our speech live up to Paul's admonition in verse 32? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Or how about verses 26 and 27? Be angry and do not sin. Give no opportunity to the devil. Is that that the, the mindset that characterizes our words and what we say to one another? For example, young people and kids, how do you talk to your brothers and sisters? Is is it in a way that demeans and brings down, that that is marked by corruption, or are you kind towards them? Are you tender-hearted and forgiving? What about the guy at work who who is not living up to the standards that you you would want him to live up to? Perhaps it's reflecting poorly on your whole team. Are you demeaning in your speech towards him, or are you willing to forgive his lack of productivity, even as Christ has forgiven your lack of righteousness? Corrupting speech that demeans out of step with God's will for our life and the pattern of Christ that he is seeking to mold us into. But fourth, there's also the danger of speech marked by corruption that deceives. Corruption that deceives. In verse 25, we're told, Having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Since Paul identifies the neighbor here as being part of one body, he has in mind, I believe, Christians speaking to other Christians. Do you lie? Do do, do you fudge the truth and tell those little white deceptions? Sadly, lying is one of the most common ways that we avoid feeling shame and experiencing guilt when we're around one another. Someone tells us to do something on one Sunday, and and we see them the next Sunday, we realize we didn't do that. We forgot to do that. Oftentimes, it's praying for them or for some other request. And what do we do? Well, first of all, we either lie and say, oh, yeah, I prayed for that. I did that. Or we, we, we again, fudge the truth. We, we manipulate the facts and present our life that week as being of such craziness and of having such important duties that surely it was not possible for me to actually get around to doing that thing that you asked me to do. Other times we lie about our spiritual life. We don't want other people to know the depths of our struggles and the reality of our immaturity lest they think less of us. Therefore, we lie. And we present ourselves as something that we aren't. And Paul says all of that is corrupting to the body of Christ. First of all, Christ is the truth. 
It is inherently against his purposes for us to deceive. But more than that, it doesn't serve us well and actually makes it harder for us to grow in godliness. It brings down the community rather than builds it up. In fact, whenever we use deceitful words, it distances us from God, causing us not to look like his children, but rather Satan who is called the father of lies. Finally, there is a kind of speech we should avoid because it is full of corruption that divides. It is full of corruption that divides. Listen again to verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. The picture is here of a people who feel wronged in some way and therefore are angry and wrathful and begin clamoring about with slander, with bitterness and malice in their heart and in their words. They use words that hurt and may often be lies. Lies. Slander often goes with gossip, both of which are listed as sins to avoid. Why? Because they divide the body of Christ. They break us apart and tear us down instead of bringing us together in unity and in love. Paul says, give up any language that would punch a hole in the unity of the church and the fellowship of God's people. Give those things up, anything that would threaten to divide us, throw it out like last week's garbage. In fact, this is the criteria for our speech, isn't it? In verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. If what we say doesn't actively build the body of Christ or those around us, then Paul says it should not come out of our mouths. This leads us to the next direction we see that we should take this morning. We should speak without corruption. And secondly, we should speak for intentional edification. We should speak for intentional edification. Paul gives the Ephesians a negative command, a prohibition, but then he also gives a positive command, an exhortation. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. As we think about edifying others with our speech, we need to first understand that we are meant to build up others with our words. In other words, we edify to build. We edify to build. Now, don't miss the striking directness of Paul's words here. He says, don't speak corrupting words. Then he says, only, only speak with words that are good for building up the body. I don't do that. The only words that come out of my mouth are not always ones that build up the body. That, 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 is, a, that is a high standard, a high calling. That There is a weight to what Paul says there that if we're not careful, we will miss it. It's not as if we have freedom and liberty to say whatever we want and then just make sure that sometimes you encourage and build up. That's not what Paul says. If words have any meaning, there is an exclusivity to the speech that should be pouring forth from us. As Paul is saying, you're not just meant to grab a stick of orbits and clean up the dirty mouth. You're not just supposed to, to change some habits or make a New Year's resolution. He says it's not enough to stop swearing or gossiping or lying. That's not sufficient. Paul is calling the Ephesians, and so as an apostle of Christ, all Christians today, to a complete reorientation of how we talk and use words. Every time we go to speak, we should have the intention of building up the person that we are talking to. There, There is... Now in Christ, no place for idle words, 
vain words, words without purpose or intent. Jesus himself says in Matthew 12, we will have to give an account for every careless word. That scares me. Because it says that that as much prayer and study and preparation that goes into this time so that none of my words will be idle, that is not sufficient for my life as a Christian. Every waking moment, I am going to give an account for the words that come out of my life. It is not at all now hard to understand why some people take a vow of silence. There is an account of accounting that will come. Every word you use, every sentence you speak, should have behind it, Paul says, the aim, the goal of building up another person. As Christians, we are to therefore be proactive with our words. Like our time and our money and our talent, we see speech as a gift from God to be used for His glory and the good of His people. That, that is an incredibly high calling. And even in trying to heed that calling, Paul makes clear that we edify to build, but we should also edify in wisdom. We should edify in wisdom. Let no, verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. In other words, there is an appropriate time for our words. When you are seeking to build up another person, it is important to know what they need at that moment. What kind of words are going to be most helpful to them? How do we exercise wisdom in this way? How do we know what to say as fits the occasion? Well, first of all, you've got to get to know the person you're talking to. Where are they at in life? What kind of needs do they have? Ask them questions. Listen to their answers. Be concerned for for them. There is a kind of conversation where you ask a question, and rather than listen to what the person's saying, you're just trying to think of another question to ask. Don't do that. Um, I think it's an old kind of old motherly, grandmotherly wisdom, and there's some truth to that. There is a reason God gave you two ears and one mouth. Listen twice as much as you speak. And in doing that, then, we can carefully choose the appropriate words needed to serve them by encouraging them, by edifying them, by building them up. What do they need? Do they need to be counseled? Do they need to be corrected, exhorted, warned, comforted? Remember Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 5? He says, we urge you, brothers and sisters, in other words, the church, Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. Now what happens if you confuse those commands? If you don't understand what fits the occasion, you don't use wisdom. Then you comfort the idle, you admonish the faint-hearted, and you ignore the weak. What happens? Very little edification. Very little edification. Those that are idle do not need to be comforted, they need to be admonished. They need to have a verbal kick in the pants. Get up and do something. Stop being idle. But those that are faint-hearted don't need to be admonished. They need to be comforted. You need to come alongside them and console them and seek to help them. Every person needs something different, and there are appropriate words at the right time that we are to be used if we are going to edify them. If you're reading with us right now, you likely be thinking of Job's friends who hammered and hammered and hammered away at Job as if he had committed some sin worthy of the suffering he experienced. Or, perhaps in some ways worse, the, the, kind, of, the kind of negative example that every husband should be familiar with in the opening chapters of 1 Samuel. There is a man there named Elkanah. He makes one mistake in that he has two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. And Peninnah was able to conceive and bear children for her husband, but Hannah was not. 
And Peninnah was not a nice lady. She would taunt Hannah for being childless, and it would lead her to, to be upset and would weep. And, of course, Elkanah would see this happening, and being the boneheaded man that he was, he would say to her, Why are you so upset? Why do you cry and not eat anything? Aren't I worth ten sons to you? Wrong thing to say, Elkanah. Wrong thing to say. The text is clear that he loves her and she loves him, but that was not a word that edified, that fit the occasion. We have to have discernment, for if we give the wrong words in the wrong situation, we will not encourage one another. And this is what God expects of us. He expects that that we will be a means of grace in the lives of others, that our words would edify to build. They would edify with wisdom, and then they would edify as grace. They would edify as grace. Listen again to verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Paul says it's important to get this because God desires us. He desires our words to be a means of grace in the lives of others. What does that mean? God's grace is his unearned favor and blessing. It is meant to come into the lives of Christians and those who are not Christians and lead them closer to God. God's grace is the means by which we become Christians and we grow as Christians. And it is his grace operating in our life through his word and his spirit and here are words that causes people to grow in faith and in Christ's likeness. So let that sink in. Your words... Your words, God intends to be grace so that your spouse, your children, your friends, your family, your church, your enemies will grow in godliness and walk more like Christ. Your speech is meant to be a means of making disciples as God's grace comes through you. So practically speaking, before you speak, before you Before you say something, ask yourself three things. First of all, ask why you're about to say what you're going to say. What are you hoping to accomplish? Secondly, what effect will come from what you're going to say? Will your words tear down and corrupt or will they build up and edify? Finally, how would you feel about hearing what you're about to say if the situation was reversed? Would you be encouraged? Would you be edified? Paul says, as Christians, we should speak without sinful corruption. We should speak for intentional edification. And finally, we should speak with divine motivation. We should speak with divine motivation. What motivates us to speak in a way contrary to our nature? Because our nature wants to use speech that is marked by corruption. That, that, is our, that is our default setting. A speech that is, that is marked by the sin in our hearts and the culture around us. So what motivates us to work hard at going against our nature? Paul gives us three incentives. First of all, we should be motivated by the Spirit's fellowship. We should be motivated by the Spirit's fellowship. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve 
the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That is an amazing verse. In part because we so often unintentionally depersonalize the Spirit of God. He becomes something less than a person. And he becomes an all-powerful force inhabiting all of life around us and within us. And we suddenly begin to sound like a sci-fi movie instead of reality. And Paul here brings us back to reality and says, No, the Spirit of God is part of the triune Godhead. He is a person that can be grieved. Think about who the Spirit is for a minute. He is the one who calls us out of our sin to believe the gospel and trust in Christ for salvation. He is the one who gives spiritual life that we might put our faith in Christ. He is the one who applies to our lives the salvation Christ secured for us on the cross. He is the one who raises us from spiritual death and sets us with Christ in the heavenly places. He is the one who guides us and empowers us as we seek to live the Christian life. He is the one who lifts our prayers to our Father in heaven. He is the one who illumines our minds to comprehend God's word. He is the one who desires our holiness, moving us and guiding us toward that in every area of life. And he is the one who is grieved when we sin. Pastor Legan Duncan says it's kind of like having that friend or coworker that we find so grating and irritating all the time. Perhaps for some of you, it might be someone on Facebook. It is that person who was essentially the anti-you. They are the person who holds the opposite view of everything that you believe. Politically, they are across the aisle. Morally, they have no qualms. And they aren't idle in these things. They almost take delight in putting it to you, mocking what you believe and what you value. Do you know a person like this? Have you had a a, a so-called friend like this? I have, and it's incredibly frustrating. Every time you go to post something on Facebook, every conversation you enter into, you're being challenged and harassed and demeaned. There is no intention or interest in dialogue or in so-called tolerance, only making your life miserable. Now imagine you had to live with that person. Imagine that was your roommate. Imagine they were your coworker. Imagine that 24-7 you are with that person and you find yourself irritated and annoyed and grieved and hurt because of the demeaning that they do to God and your Savior Christ. And now you're beginning to understand what it means to grieve the Holy Spirit. He doesn't come and go if you are a Christian. He is there. He is is the one who manifests God's presence in your life every moment of your existence. And the point here is not that we are directly assaulting the Spirit, but that we are undermining His work in our lives. The Spirit's purpose in our life is to shape and guide us into the very image of Christ for the glory of God. Imagine the indignity. Imagine the grief cause when we thwart that desire by casually rebelling against our Father's will. Paul is showing us that the use of our words does not just harm or build up people, but that through harming or building up, there is a spiritual reality there as well. We are either delighting God or we are grieving God. Thus the mark of one who is spiritually mature, who is led by the Spirit, is one who seeks to rein in and gain control of his speech. The spiritual person gives caution to what he says and seeks hard to avoid working against the Spirit's work in his life. Secondly, we are motivated not only by by the Spirit's fellowship, but also by the Father's holiness. 
We are motivated by the Father's holiness. Notice again what he says at the beginning of verse 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Be imitators of God as beloved children. You know, for better or for worse, children reflect their parents. I, I was at a store the other day, and uh, we, were, uh, we were checking out, and um, uh, I had all four kids with me. I had Ellie in the carts, and I had um, the other three in tow behind, and we're waiting in line, and things are getting a little frazzled as you wait with four kids in line, and someone's going slow, and we finally get up there, and they're helping me get the stuff on. And before this lady says, hi, who's checking me out? Before she says, hi, how are you? Any coupons today? Anything like that? She just kind of quickly glances my four children and looks at me and says, you couldn't ever deny them even if you tried. <laughs> well, that's probably true. Uh, Melinda and I pretty much make one kind of baby and, 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 and that's it. <laughs> but Paul has something much deeper in mind. Save Christ himself, all of God's children are adopted. Every single one of them. Yet it's by learning more and more about our Heavenly Father, more and more living in His presence, that more and more we begin to look like Him by reflecting His character. That is certainly true in our speech as well. The way that we talk should reflect God Himself. That alone should, should motivate us to think twice about what we say and even what we pray for at night. We are motivated by the Spirit's fellowship by the Father's holiness, and finally, we should be motivated by the Son's love, by the Son's love. Paul completes the very Trinitarian description of our way of life in verse 2. He has said, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, be imitators of God, and now walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This brings together not only the previous prohibition and exhortation, but also our motivation to be godly in speech. We are motivated by the Son's love. Now think about what Paul is saying here, because frankly, we are tempted to get a little bit on edge, to become a little bit resistant whenever someone begins to tell us how to live, to offer correction, especially if we think it's no big deal. Some of us probably even think now this is all so overblown. Does it really matter what I say? Does it really matter what kind of words I use? I mean, I'm not saying anything really bad, but, but notice, notice how Christ lived. He loved his Father and he loved us. Therefore, he gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. On one level, Christ displayed his love in the way he spoke to those around him. In that way, Jesus stands as the perfect example of the one who knows how to build up and encourage and use words as a means of grace in the life of those around him. Think of the way he spoke to Nicodemus, correcting him in a gracious way. Think about the woman at the well and Zacchaeus and his disciples who sometimes displayed a complete lack of understanding as to what Christ was all about. And yet there he is, patiently, wisely, talking them in ways that build up and our means of grace in their life. But Paul points to something else here, something far more fundamental. He says, Christ shows his love for God and for us by willingly going to the cross and offering up his life for us that we might be brought into fellowship with his Father. In other words, love motivated Christ to sacrifice everything for others. And now as the recipients of that 
divine love, of that sacrifice that brings forgiveness in life, we should be motivated to love as well. We should so love God that every word that we say, we should desire to honor him. We should so love others that we desire to build them up with our words and keep tight rein on what we say. Rather than being driven by what we like, what we know, what the culture around us says and what we have been brought up to do, we should desire to be transformed in our speech, letting love of God and love of others motivate us in something as simple as our speech when it motivated something as profound as life and death in our Savior. When we are little, our parents often try to comfort us by saying, sticks and stones can break your bones, but words can never hurt you. I don't know whoever came up with that, but they obviously didn't know what they were talking about. I can tell you from experience as a little child to a grown man, now as a pastor, words can hurt. They can sting, they can bruise, they can stab. There are certain things, in fact, I would rather sometimes people take up a rock and throw it at me as I, as I walk down the street. Words hurt. But Paul is clear that words can also build up. Words can edify and grow and be a means of grace in people's life. And as we seek as God's people to edify one another, to build up one another, to help bring others into our midst of the gospel of Christ, then let us consider our words. Let us consider how we speak. Are we moving people closer to God or are we grieving his spirit among us? Are we talking in line with God's purposes as evidence of our love for him and his people or simply seeking our own pleasure? May God be glorified and his church edified in our words. Father, this is our prayer this morning that we would see, God, that there is no such thing as an idle word for the Christian, a careless word for your people. Father, you are concerned for our holiness and our godliness, for our reflection as your children of you, our Father, in the smallest of details. Father, in an age that so prizes relationships, words are so very important. So, Father, help us to be wise in our words. Help us to be godly in our words. May they not, may they not be a corrupting influence on us and on those around us, but a gracious influence, God. That we ourselves would take encouragement from you in your words and the difference that comes to us when we actively try to imitate you, but also to those around us when we use words seasoned with the salt of your grace, God. This is our prayer. Only you can fulfill it as we seek your face and call out for the grace we need for change. We ask all these things and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.